If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. And welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. From the German invasion of Poland to the liberation of Paris and the discovery of Nazi concentration camps, women reporters covered and even broke some of the most crucial stories of the Second World War. In her new book, Going With The Boys, Judith Mackerel charts the wartime careers of six female journalists who overcame significant obstacles to report from the front lines. I spoke to her to find out more. Your new book charts the careers of six women war reporters over the course of the Second World War. What was it that fascinated you about these women and made you think, yep, I need to write a book about that? I've always been fascinated by the Second World War. I guess for my generation, it was quite recent, quite recent history. You know, it was in all the comics my brother read. It was in the films that were on telly. But of course, we never studied it at school. Unlike my kids who seem to have done nothing but World War II in their history curriculum. You know, so it was was both in my life, but something I felt I needed to know more about. And... um, It was when I actually came across one of the women uh, who I write about, Helen Kirkpatrick, who was an American correspondent, uh, that I suddenly thought, 
that writing about it from the point of view of women would be a really interesting angle. Uh, I can tell you the story of this. I was actually uh, in Paris interviewing a choreographer. He recommended a book to me, uh, which was a, a history of the Ritz Hotel, uh, partly because it also featured a woman from one of my previous books. Mm. And there was a little anecdote in there about this woman called Helen Kirkpatrick, who had been invited to lunch by the very macho writer Ernest Hemingway the day after Paris was liberated. And she'd sat there and drunk with him and it had been, you know, lots of all the boys, all the drinking, all the war stories. And she had said at some point, OK, I've got to go now. You know, Paris has just been liberated. I've got more reporting to do. And he'd sort of said, oh, sit still, sit still. You'll never again be able to say you sat and had lunch with Hemingway at the Ritz after just after Paris was liberated. She went off and she ended up at Notre Dame where there was uh, a service of celebration was being held for all the resistance workers. And she was thrilled. She seemed to be the only journalist there, apart from a BBC radio correspondent. Uh, and so she was there to witness what could almost have been a massacre because I hadn't realised that after the Allies liberated Paris in 1944, August 1944, 50,000 German snipers were still left in the city to try and confound the Allies and also to protect the rest of their army as it pushed north. And a whole number of these snipers were hidden around Notre Dame waiting for this service of um, celebration to be held and also for the four generals, including General de Gaulle, who were its kind of uh, guests of honour. And when people moved into the cathedral, they all opened fire. And General de Gaulle was sort of walking into what looked like a hail of bullets. It was amazing he wasn't killed. And Helen was there to report it all. And I was thinking, oh, my God, what an extraordinary woman. A, the courage it must have taken to have walked forward into those bullets and written her notes. Uh, but B, also to have uh, stood up to Hemingway, who was notoriously lordly and bossy. So I became very interested in her and realised that there were a small but very determined number of women like Helen Kirkpatrick who had gone to the front lines of the Second World War, who had reported on those battle stories, but who also uh, not only had to overcome the kind of arrogance and entitlement of other war reporters like Hemingway, but had also had to confront an absolute mountain of prejudice and uh, real um, unfairness, if you like, from the military who did not want women in those battle zones. Yeah. Um, I think that the anecdote you just shared there shows that these women really were in the middle of the action and, and the six women you look at were all in different places at different times of the war. Mm. What were some of the key moments or stories from the war that they covered or even broke? Uh, I was really lucky in my choice of the women. I didn't quite know from the outset how marvellously well-placed they would be to tell most of the story of the war. So uh, one of them, Claire Hollingworth, who was British, who actually died not that long ago, uh, she had 
literally been into just a week into her career as a journalist before she was sent to Poland, where she had been working as a relief helper with some of the refugee agencies. Uh, And she was down in the southwest of Poland, just under orders to uh, monitor the border and look out for any potential troop activity. And she, well, she, she won t- two exclusive scoops literally mm-hmm. in the first week of her career. The first was, uh, I think it was on the 29th or the 30th of August when she uh, borrowed a diplomatic car, rode over the border into Germany, which was in- illegal and incredibly dangerous, and was driving around when she happened to pass a valley where she happened to see nine panzer tank divisions lined up, readiness for attack. And this was very interesting because Britain at that point was still at the negotiating table, really Mm. hoping that Hitler would once again be pulled back from making a strike on Eastern Europe. What a scoop to start your career with. It was an amazing scoop. So she she scooted back across the border, telephoned back to her boss, but then on the 1st of September, she she was again, she was still in southwest of Poland when she heard tank fire, when she saw planes circling in the distance and held out the receiver of the phone to uh, the person, the diplomat she was, British diplomat she was telephoning in Warsaw saying, uh, I think the invasion's begun. He was going, no, 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 it can't possibly have begun. We're still at the negotiating table. But yeah, so she scooped both the potential, the the likelihood of the invasion of Poland and then the actual invasion. So she was pretty extraordinary. Um, Martha Gellhorn, who was married to Hemingway and had to put up with a great deal of his ego, she was desperate to report on the D-Day landings in Normandy when the uh, Allied forces crossed the channel to invade France and push Germany back. And because women were absolutely forbidden to go anywhere near France at that point, she rode stowaway in a hospital ship uh, and not only got much closer to the action than, well, any other woman, but certainly many of her male colleagues, but actually was allowed to to go on the to land on the on Omaha Beach when she helped the the other medical teams rescue injured bodies, and her eyewitness account of those first hours of the invasion are unmatched, I think, by other war correspondents. So you mentioned there um, the opposition to female reporters from the army being attached to the army. What Mm. were the actual rules that surrounded that? Well, the British didn't want women there at all. uh, And they wouldn't allow, they wouldn't give accreditation to women journalists until very, very close to the end of the war. Uh, And their arguments were sort of several. They, They were worried about women being in dangerous situations. I mean, this was long before women were members of the armed services, except in Russia and certain other countries. Um, They were worried that uh, 
it would de- cause a degree of sexual unrest amongst the soldiers, you know, who might have been away from their wives and girlfriends for months, if not years. Uh, they were worried that the men would be prompted by their chivalrous instincts to look after a woman journalist rather than be firing at the enemy. But the most bizarre uh, excuse that was trotted out again and again was the issue of toilet facilities, what the British called the convenience question and the Americans called that latrine business. And amazingly, it seemed to them they were more worried about the idea of women and men peeing in mixed company in front of each other than they were about bullets and shells, the dangers of bullets and shells. And and women found this extraordinary because, of course, they found, you know, it, it wasn't an easy situation for them. But as Helen Kirkpatrick said, when one of the PROs, the press public relations officers, said to her, no, you can't go to North Africa because of um, the convenience question. She said, it's just like camping in the woods, you know. How did they overcome or sidestep some of these obstacles to get into the middle of the action? Well, the Americans, when they joined the war in uh, late 41, were were much more open to women than the British. So even though they still had rules about not allowing women to the forward areas of the battle zones, they would at least allow women close to the action. Um, And so a lot of the British women, like Claire Hollingworth, for instance, just um, got themselves accredited to an American newspaper, which then allowed them to be accredited to the American army. And once they'd got that accreditation and once they had the uniform, they were then very, very adept at just finding loopholes, sneaking their way around, getting close to the action, finding certain officers who would be sympathetic to them. Or as in the case of Martha, just riding stowaway or whatever. So so they, I mean, but it took a ridiculous amount of their courage and ingenuity to actually get to the places where the action was, let alone confront the fighting that they were meant to report. So And on the one hand, although that was, uh, you could say that was a real disadvantage for them, it often meant that they got the more interesting stories, Mm. uh, that they, you know, they they found themselves maybe amongst more sympathetic troops who might be more interested in talking to them, in confiding to them, or just getting to bits of the action that um, the men hadn't reached. And what kind of reception did they generally receive from from the men on the ground, from the ordinary troops? Mostly the men were thrilled by them. Uh, I mean, there was, I I, I mean, the men on the whole were very keen to have any journalist near them because one of the great fears of soldiers then and now is of sort of dying in action anonymously without anyone knowing what it was that they were, who they were fighting, why they were fighting, what they were suffering. So they were always very keen to have someone to talk to. Um, I think they they liked having women around. I, I'm I'm convinced there was a degree of uh, abuse uh, or or threat, uh, but 
And and the women, I think, were interesting in their different relationships with the men. Some of the women had affairs with soldiers, you know, one passing affairs, passing encounters. I think there was a amongst some of them, there was a feeling that um when the world was going up in smoke, you just grabbed whatever comfort you could. And if these boys were facing death every day, you gave what comfort you could as well. Um, whereas some women kept themselves almost in a more motherly relationship with the soldiers and didn't want to have any kind of sexual or romantic connection with them. Uh, they just felt in war that was too inappropriate. So it varied. I mean, it was, but it was interesting. The other male journalists, some of them would get quite sniffy about the women because they felt that the women had an advantage, that they could flirt their way to a better story or, or a more kind of heartfelt confidence, perhaps, than they could get. Yeah. So if these if these women were were sneaking into places, you know, right in the middle of the action that they weren't necessarily meant to be in, what was the role? of censorship at this time were there things that they that they simply weren't allowed to report on yes men and women alike the the censorship was was very heavy uh obviously because they had they couldn't print anything that was that would give the enemy any kind of intelligent useful intelligence um but there was also during that war a very strong sense both amongst the censors and uh, the newspaper editors that you had to maintain public morale. So, for instance, when um, Britain was suffering the first stages of the Blitz in 1940, you couldn't publish the real death figures. You couldn't publish the really gruesome images of corpses lying in the street. Mm. Uh, you couldn't publish uh, the truth also about the, the kind of reverse side of the blitz spirit, which was people looting bombed houses or going through the pockets of dead bodies looking for wallets and watches and what have you. So there, there, was, a, there was always a tension between trying to be as accurate as you could in reporting the war, but also cast kind of keeping a veil over its most gruesome aspects. And even um, when they were pushing into formerly occupied France and then into Germany, the the horrors that they unearthed, uh, mm. Nazi-occupied towns in the Gestapo prisons and obviously then in the prison camps, there were sort of rules of good taste and delicacy that... that prevented them from really writing as vividly and as shockingly mm. uh, as, as, as many of them wished they could. I, and it's interesting how many wrote post-war memoirs when they, could, when they were then free of censorship and could write more openly. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. But what was extraordinarily courageous about her was that although... Nobody knew this, actually, until very late in life. Her mother had been was a Jew. So Sigrid herself was uh, in a particularly perilous situation, as not only as a critic of the Nazi regime, but also as, by Nazi reckoning, a Jew herself. 
This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Something that you, that you mentioned in the book is that um, some of these women, so I'm thinking of uh, Lee Miller in particular, mm. were, were very subjective in their reporting. You know, they, they weren't there to just state facts they were there to kind of give a sense of of the time and the place what kind of attitudes does that reveal i think uh, i mean lee miller and martha galehorn were quite Mm -hmm. alike in this that they they believed that their responses their emotions were as much a part of the story as the facts they were reporting in part because they wanted readers to share, if not the gruesome details, at least the sense of horror or revulsion or excitement or pride that they had uh, when witnessing their guys fighting or unearthing German horrors. Uh, I mean, and for Martha, uh, who was reporting from Spain as well as on the Second World, the, the Civil War in Spain, as well as the Second World War, her the sort of passion of her reporting, the subjectivity of it, was also because she wanted Americans to participate in it. She was, she was part of the drive to get America involved in the war because, of course, for the first two and a bit years, they remained neutral. So she always believed that journalism was on the side of the angels and that if she could somehow persuade public opinion to believe as strongly as she did about the evils of fascism, uh, about the dangers of Germany, that America would join the war earlier. But it was also that Lee and Martha were both writing for monthly or weekly magazines. They were writing for magazines, so they didn't have the kind of deadlines. They didn't have the kind of 
type word counts that newspaper reporters had. So their brief was was different anyway. Mm. I'm interested by what you say there about um, this kind of motivation to influence events with reporting. Mm. And it's almost reporting as a form of activism. But is that one of the main um, motivations behind these women becoming reporters? Because, I mean, it's not exactly an easy job to stroll into. (laughs) They had to overcome so many obstacles. You think, what drove them to pursue such a difficult path? Uh, What I rather loved about Virginia Coles was that she became a war reporter because she wanted to see the world, partly. I mean, she's rather impossible not to love because she would... She she served her apprenticeship in Spain with Martha Gellhorn, but made herself notorious for the fact that she'd only packed basically a wardrobe as if if she was having tea at the plaza in Manhattan and would wander into trenches wearing her high-heeled suede shoes and sort of dangling gold bracelets. (laughs) But she was unstoppable. And because she was sort of rather glamorous and beautiful and had this air of extraordinary charm uh she 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 got her way into stories that nobody else did so there's a wonderful story of her in uh Spain where she wanders by mistake into a Soviet HQ where no journalist was meant to be because the Russians weren't meant to be in Spain helping the Republicans against Franco uh and the general rather falling in love with this capitalist beauty, keeps her prisoner for three days uh, so that in order to try and uh, convert her to Marxism. So she spends three days being fed champagne by this (laughs) strangely chivalrous Soviet general and uh, being encouraged to become a Marxist. And Later in the in the Second World War itself, she went to extraordinary places. She saw the Winter War in Finland, and uh, and she went deeper into Tunisia, the Desert War, than I think any other journalist. But everybody always remembers her as this kind of rather ditzy, glamorous woman who just somehow would be in the middle of danger and somehow coming back with the best stories. I mean, for one of the most fascinating of the six women that I write about, Sigrid Schultz, it was very definitely that she wanted to change world events. I mean, she she was she was a woman. She was born in Chicago of German Norwegian parentage, uh, and she moved to Berlin back in 1913, and ended up as bureau chief. Uh, Berlin bureau chief for the Chicago Tribune, which was amazing. She was the first woman to be given such a post in a prestigious American publication. And her mission from 1933 onwards was to keep the world informed about the criminal state to which Germany was becoming under the Nazis and Adolf Hitler. And it, it was for her a life duty, really. And she risked interrogations, uh, threats of deportation and ultimately death threats. How do you think that she managed to get away with that? Because you you would think that the, the Nazi regime wouldn't tolerate that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, it was a, it was a really fascinating tightrope that she trod. Uh, the newspapers, interestingly, weren't censored by the Nazis. Uh, 
but the journalists had to self-censor themselves in order not to just be thrown out of the country uh, or accidentally killed, as happened to some of them. Well, she did, she did two things. Firstly, uh, she invented an alter ego named John Dixon, who she used to cover her most hostile reports of the Nazi government. But she also enjoyed the fact, benefited from the fact that her, the proprietor of the Chicago Tribune was actually, if not pro-Nazi, he was, he was not overtly hostile. So her very critical reports would be balanced by more positive editorials by him. And the Nazis needed to keep the Americans on side, uh, up, certainly up until late 41, because they didn't want America joining England and France, Britain and France, uh, against them. So it, she, she just learnt which facts she could sneak in, which she could would have to write under this alias, and which she just had to imply by just the tone of her writing. But what was extraordinarily courageous about her was that although nobody knew this, actually until very late in life, her mother had been was a Jew, so Sigrid herself was uh, in a particularly perilous situation, as not only as a critic of the Nazi regime, but also as, by Nazi reckoning, a Jew herself. So we mentioned earlier Lee Miller, and I just wanted to ask a bit more in detail about her because she's such a fascinating figure. Yeah. So of course she she was kind of involved in fashion and the art scene, and then became a war reporter. What can you tell us about her transition between these two yeah. worlds? Well, yes, I mean, it is, here's this one of the world's most beautiful women, renowned both as a model for Vogue and as the muse and lover and collaborator of Man Ray, the famous, famous surrealist. Um, she arrived in London with her lover, Roland Penrose, Penrose just at the beginning of the war and managed to get a job with Vogue, uh, initially just doing kind of war fashion photography, really. Um, but once, and, and she'd had no interest really in current affairs. She, she never thought of herself as a photojournalist. Um, you know, it, her life was essentially about her lovers, her affairs, her own creativity. But when uh, the bombing of London started in the autumn of 1940, she was riveted by the kind of beauty and the horror of this new cityscape. And she took some extraordinary photos that were then published uh, as part of a war propaganda book, again, part of the effort to shame America into joining the war. And she felt then doing those photographs that she had discovered her subject. I think before that she'd always been so restless and self-doubting of herself as an artist and as a photographer. And I think it was with the war that she felt as if she'd been caught up in a story that was larger than herself, more meaningful than herself. And that gave her and her camera a real purpose. And um, then... 
really with the help of the extraordinary editor, Audrey Withers, who was at Vogue, who was really sympathetic to the idea of extending her remit to cover the war, not just utility fashions and rationing, but actually war stories. She encouraged Lee not only to take photographs that were connected with the war, but also to write her own stories. And I think this was the amazing thing about Lee. She'd never... I mean, she she was a very witty woman. She had a rather sort of dry and interesting way with words, but she'd never written an article. And it cost her dearly, I think. It was very difficult for her to make that transition. But when she uh, started doing these photo, these war stories for Vogue, uh, she she gradually acquired the skills of a... Of a, of a journalist as well. And when she was sent out to France in 1944 and really was covered all the major developments of the war, the liberation of Paris, the push through Germany, the opening up of the concentration camps, she, she wrote these 10,000-word articles to go with her photos. And both were equally haunting, actually. I mean, equally powerful. And it, it's, it's, it's a marvellous tribute to her and her stamina that she was able to do this, but also an extraordinary tribute to Vogue that they devoted so many pages to these kinds of um, pieces, these kinds of features. As you say, um, Lee Miller's photos of especially the liberation of concentration camps are, are really haunting. And it highlights the fact that these women saw mm. lots of incredibly terrible things. Which leads me on to kind of a thought about what the cost of all this was for some of them. I'm, I know for Lee Miller especially, um, she never really got her life quite back on track after the mm. war, did she? Yeah, she said she, said she never lost the stench of Dachau. From her, had, it was always in her nostrils, she said, the stench of Daco, and she admitted that perhaps she'd got in over her head. I mean, when she was with, when she entered Dachau, she was with her lover and collaborator, really, um, Dave Sherman, and he said that he was amazed to see the the calm deliberation with which she went around the entire compound, just photographing everything. Was there a sense? With the reporters that the, were the first people, it seems like that that they knew what they were they were turning up at. It was way beyond what they expected. That each one has said or written that the very first time they walked through one of those the gates of one of those concentration camps, they simply didn't understand what they were seeing. I mean, they'd, they'd heard rumours of the camps. Obviously, questions had been raised in Parliament as to why they hadn't be they weren't being liberated but nobody understood the extent of them until they were those camps were liberated um and for someone like lee it was almost that the, the the capacity to dissociate herself from those horrors while she was doing her work uh was was in a sense what then made its so difficult for her to recover. It was as if she pushed the trauma very deep and then it just lay buried within her. And of course, post-traumatic stress syndrome was not, disorder, sorry, PTSD was not then diagnosed. 
really. But for Lee, it was it was not merely the trauma of what she saw, which all the other correspondents saw. Uh, it was also for her that the war had given her a sense of purpose, her sense of living in the present moment, of being part of something so incredible and so important that it gave her own life meaning. And I think many of the women found it very difficult to adapt to civilian life afterwards, as did so many men. I mean, it was, I think there's one historian described them as the legion of the psychically displaced. Uh, and Martha Gellhorn put it another way. She said, you know, that war had become a kind of home for her, however mad and bad and hateful. And she didn't know how to settle into any other. And, and it was also difficult for the women too, because the 1950s obviously was a period of when all the returning servicemen needed work, when there was a conservative return to rather sort of traditional values and women were not supposed to be working, were supposed to be back in the kitchen. Mm. And of course, the draw, the adrenaline rush of war reporting for some of these women continued. And I'm, I'm thinking of Claire Hollingworth, who continued reporting on war for, for mm. many more years after this. What can you tell us about her later career? Yeah, Claire Hollingworth felt herself very much a professional correspondent. And in fact, she'd towards the end of the war, she'd fallen in love with another uh, war correspondent. And afterwards, they formed a kind of husband and wife reporting team. And they were everywhere in uh, the Middle East. Claire then went on to Vietnam, to India, to Aden. She... Her whole identity, I think, was bound up with scooping a story, meeting a deadline, being where the danger was. And in fact, she didn't stop reporting until she'd reached her 100th birthday, pretty much. <laughs> so impressive. What do you think are some of the most impressive or affecting pieces of writing that these women have left us? And how do they offer a different perspective on the war from one that we might get from straight military accounts, for example? The most affecting pieces are inevitably Lee and Martha's because they were so much more personal and so much more subjective. One of Martha's pieces about uh, the little Belgian, t Belgian city of Bastogne, which she reached, uh, I think it was early in 1945, when the Americans were defending it against German attack. And she, she just makes a very small and obvious point about how, you know, victories are not made up out of divisions or battalions, but by these men, by our men. And she describes meeting, going to, out to interview 10 Americans who are holding a kind of post and you know they're very young they're very gaunt they're unshaven and they're very very frightened and so often she writes from the point of view of these individual boys uh, and says afterwards you know if they if they survive the war we should make it our duty to make sure they live a lovely, easy life because that's what they deserve. I know, and when she toured a military hospital when 
when she wrote from besieged city of Madrid, you know, she would always make you aware that these were individual people facing death, facing terror, facing hardship, not knowing where their families were. There was not that much war reporting that was at that point in the war, giving you that very human perspective. But equally, someone like Helen Kirkpatrick, who was writing much drier uh, newspaper prose, that when when she when she's allowed a little glimmer of of subjectivity, it that's incredibly moving. I mean, she talks about uh, witnessing the liberation of Cherbourg and Rennes, and saying, "I haven't washed for three days, and I'm filthy with mud, but I've been kissed and I've been crying." So you know, I've been washed by my own tears, basically. I mean. It, those little moments also give you a real little insight, a little window onto just how intense some of those moments were for those women. That was Judith Mackerel. Her book, Going With The Boys, is out now, published by Picador. You can find a whole wealth of material on World War II, including on several of the key events we discussed in this conversation, at our website, historyextra.com. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.